0: Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. I'm Barney Hoskins. I'm in our Hammersmith offices with my colleagues Mark Pringle, Hi, Barney. And Jasper Morrison Bowie. Hello, Barney. And we're here to talk about everything that's new in the world's largest archive of music journalism. And joining us for this episode is Guardian columnist Andy Beckett.
1: Hi, Andy. Welcome. Hi, Barney. Great M- to nice see nice you. to have me here. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, you know, hold off before you sort <laughs> <laughs> of preserve your judgment.
0: <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) For our listeners, Andy's been writing about politics and pop culture since 1993 and is the featured writer on this week's Rocksback Pages homepage. He is also the author of three terrific books, Pinochet and Piccadilly, When the Lights Went Out and Promised You a Miracle. Andy, we want to ask you about your career and more generally about the relationship between politics and pop. First of all, I just wanted to quote the last sentence of your Rockback Pages bio, which states he still buys music with a weakness for seventies Miles Davis and eighties albums on SST. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know when you when you wrote that because I can't remember exactly when you know we added you your work to Rocksback Pages, but I'm guessing it's probably three or four years ago. And you still buy. Albums by Miles Davis and Black Flag. Yeah, Yeah. I
2: mean, I've kind of expanded into John Coltrane as well now. So through the pandemic, I used to go on these kind of walks into Soho from Hackney where I live and go to the various shops that were still extant and buy very cheap John Coltrane albums, kind of almost one by one. Yeah, no, that's, I'm afraid I'm becoming a kind of typical middle-aged man sort of liking (laughs) jazz and then, you know, a bit of punk nostalgia, but... I live in a Café Otto in Hackney, so I do see quite a lot of new right. music there. But those are not things I tend to buy. It's more things I just go to hear. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I'm not totally fogey-ish. Uh, my, my son is... By <laughs> the end
0: of this episode, yeah. it might be.
2: <laughs> my son is very into kind of 80s and early 90s hip-hop. And I've got lots of that from, from previous lives. And so I am, occasionally have moments of impressing his friends where they kind of pull out my... <laughs> you know, Public Enemy, Vinyl, whatever. Yes, Um, nice. nice. So I have a tiny bit of credibility in the family music culture, but only a little. (laughs) (laughs) When and how did you first get into music, do you remember? I mean, I was born in 1969, so I kind of first got into music properly very beginning of the 80s, really. Mm -hmm. So it was sort of that English electronic pop music, really kind of soft sell, and then ABC, I guess, less electronic. But that kind of stuff, I really, really like that, quite dramatic. Mm -hmm kind of English synthesizer pop that was my first and I used to you know take stuff off the radio I wasn't buying it at that point but that was my kind of beginning and yeah I like the drama of it and I like the way it's quite concise and it seemed quite modern as well at that stage when I was 11 or 12 I didn't want stuff that had been made in the 60s and as we know that stuff was much harder to get then as well so in a way you couldn't access older pop music as easily so yeah I was very passionately into that kind of stuff And then when I was a bit older, sort of 14, 15, then I got more into kind of, you know, guitars and Lloyd Cole and Mm. things like that. And at my school, at secondary school, a lot of people I knew were goths and (laughs) I had kind of contempt for them in a kind of grand way and thought that I was much more adventurous because I liked things on SST records from America and I thought goth was all a bit kind of tame. Um, (laughs) I may not think that now, but I quite like Bella Lugosi's Dead. I quite like that song, but that's kind of, that's a bit... That's a bit better, I
1: think.
2: Yeah, it was kind of electronic music, and then it was kind of guitars, and then when once I was at university, which in the late '80s, then it was kind of rave culture and that whole thing. And I've always kind of liked sound. I've always been interested in like, mm-hmm. what it sounds like. It has always been the most exciting thing. I think it took me a long time. Maybe I needed to kind of grow up a bit to, to realise that lyrics were really important as well. But for a long time, it was almost like if it sounded interesting, that was what kind of drew me in.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm still... that way. I, I'm not sure I know there's a complete lyric to a single song... You still never listen to a single lyric in his history of <laughs> rock and I mean, roll. Bits, bits drifting, but it, yeah, for me it's always been
0: actually just, yeah, just I'm, the, I'm the sonic a sort impact. of agree to some degree. I mean, I think, that what's the point? If it's primarily about the lyrics, well, you can read them, you can read books, you can read poetry, yeah. you know. And so music is surely above all about sound.
2: Yeah, and I think maybe especially in that time from the sort of 70s to the 90s where sound could change quite quickly because the technology was changing quite quickly. So things could sound totally different three years later than how they sounded before, and that's quite exciting to follow. And obviously there's still change now, but I'd argue maybe sound-wise the change is more incremental, at least in Western kind of pop music, I think. It's not maybe changing as fast as it was then, but maybe that's not right.
1: I I disagree purely because I'm starting to hear stuff for, for the first time, I can say for a long time, I'm hearing stuff I've never heard before. And also, I think, as you're talking about kind of hip hop, but I think that what hip hop did was set a whole train of ways of making records, which is continuing to this day. Mm. And the other thing is, of course, is pointing at Jasper's laptop, the so ubiquity <laughs> of laptops. I mean, yeah. things like grime couldn't yeah. exist yeah. without cheap PCs. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Did you write any, like, music journalism per se before you? The earliest pieces we've got from, like, 93. Skrill Marcus interview. You yeah. Did, did, you do, did you write any music journalism as such?
2: When I was at university, I worked for a student paper right. that Mim and some friends had set up in a quite a Thatcherite kind of way. <laughs> we set up our own paper. And I wrote quite a lot about music for that. What was that called? It was called The Word. Um, no connection to the no TV programme. They, <laughs> the they copied us, yep. we claim. Right. Yeah, so I wrote about music a bit then because I obviously like music. And then I went to California to do a journalism sort of professional degree right. because I wanted to be in California for a couple of years. Um, <laughs> and I think it almost seemed like, the ob- you know, I know about music, so I'll start there. And I was living in Berkeley where Graham Marcus obviously lives. And right. so that was kind of the first big piece i did for british paper because i was like oh he lives up the road if i ask him nicely maybe he'll talk to me so i had after that piece i had a brief phase of thinking maybe i'll be a music writer for a newspaper and Mm -hmm. i did some other pieces for the independent on sunday about music but then i think i kind of realized quite quickly i love music but maybe i want that to be a pleasure rather than a professional thing Yeah, yeah 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 And also, I kind of thought, do I want to sit in the room with a lot of musicians for the rest of my life? Um, I'm not, no, not deriding musicians, but I kind of thought, I'm not a musician myself. I just kind of thought, have I almost got the confidence to do that? Yeah, yeah. And I think that was part of it. So had I been offered a job as a kind of music critic, then obviously I would have taken it. But I think quite rapidly, I thought, actually, this is just going to be a thing I'm into rather than yeah. what I write about. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Fair enough. But then yeah. since then, I've written about it intermittently ever yes. since. And I quite like journalists as a reader who have unexpected interests you know so if someone thinks oh Andy Beckett's a rather earnest political journalist if they then see I know all about you know hardcore in the early 80s that might intrigue them you know because as we'll get on to there's a really interesting kind of porous boundary between what is not isn't political and Mm -hmm. music that is overtly political and is more subtly political and in political writing that I've done I've never been a kind of Westminster correspondent. I've always wanted to expand the definition of what political is as Mm -hmm. widely as possible. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's very much about culture and kind of etiquette and psychology as much as it's about who's got a majority in Westminster. So retaining some interest in music is really important, I think, professionally.
0: You are one of my favourite Guardian columnists, really, for those reasons. Having said that, I read both When the Lights Went Out and Promised Mm -hmm. You a Miracle, Without knowing that you were into music at all, I mean, even though uh, there are musical references, I promise you, about the the title, of course, it's a Simple Minds (laughs) track. Um, But I, I didn't, I wouldn't have known about, you know, your interest in SST records. Once I did, I thought, well, we have to get Andy on on RVP. But (laughs) I, but I, I always. Love your columns in The Guardian, I think, because they don't feel like they come from inside the, the Westminster Echo Chamber.
2: Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I'm not doing down people who do that job because I think it's really important that you yes, have some, you know, course. political correspondents and columnists who mm. know exactly what's happening in the Shadow Cabinet at any given minute. That's really important. I'm but sort I think would... you're yeah. who uh,
1: at the Mirror. Broke some of the biggest political stories of the last, you know, five years. It's
2: Absolutely. Extraordinary Absolutely, and that's a very difficult, complicated job, maintaining yeah. alliances and sources and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. It's very hard, knowing how far to push it. But I guess I've always been someone where, although I've written about politics for a long time, I kind of tend to think each piece I write, I'm not trying to maintain my network of kind mm. of allies. It's like I just write the piece, and if yeah. they don't like it, then I'll just write about something else. Yes. And... It's interesting what you said, Barney, about how you didn't realise I was so to music previously. Because when I did this book about the 1970s, um, when the lights went out, even though clearly that's an incredibly rich time for music, mm-hmm. part of the project of the book was almost to say, let's write about the 70s and not write about popular culture yeah. all the time. Because I think often, in a slightly lazy way, people write about their decade through popular culture and actually don't even know who was Prime Minister when that record was yes. made. And yeah. so in a kind of slightly... Yeah. revisionist way, yeah. I thought, yeah, there are musical references in the book, but I'm not going to say The Clash explained Britain in 1978 or whatever, because although they do in some ways, mm-hmm. I would have argued when I wrote the book, you know, actually, who was Chancellor then, or what the SWP were up sure. to was equally important, or if not more. It was an
1: extraordinary period politically in this country, yeah. I mean, it really was, I remember it all too vividly <laughs> I mean, you could argue that the point where politics and pop music sort of Conjoined was when those guys wrote the letters to the news to the music press yeah. about Eric Clapton yeah. on stage and his, his racist comments, which started Rock Against Racism. Yeah. Yeah. Does that? Is that how you would sort of see that? Factor?
2: Yeah, I think that is really, really important. I mean, I wrote about about that movement in, in When the Lights Went Out. And mm-hmm. one, well, as soon as I got the magazine that they produced temporary hoarding out of right, the yeah, British yeah. Library yeah. Archives, yeah. I was very excited because I thought the kind of graphic design of it was really kind of modern and interesting. Yes. It wasn't like a kind of granola kind of leftism. It was yeah, a yeah. more modern... And I think there is... You know, if you're my age, you know, I'm early 50s. So to me, Rock Against Racism seems not massively different from the kind of Glastonbury's that I've been to mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. It, 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 yet b- prior to that, you're right, it was quite unusual for bands to kind of form coalitions in quite such a sort of focused way. Oh,
1: well, I, I think there was actually a revulsion of standard politics, which runs through from the sort of hippies yeah. through to, through to the mid-70s, is that that's what the man does, yeah. and we're above all that. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's about psychedelics and sort of recreating all... In herself, and so yeah. on and so forth. I'm very selfish. I mean, in the sense that you know, mm. we both loved the singer songwriter period, but that was a very inward looking stretch. Yeah. But Though, of course, Jackson Brown was a leading mm. proponent of no nukes in America, yeah. mm. and but he was right out of that sort of mm. s- self obsessed. Yeah.
0: So I thought it was worth just quoting from that letter, which you added right. to RBP some years ago, twenty eighth of August, nineteen seventy six. Letters to Sounds. I don't know if there were letters to the other I think they as well. Some, I think the enemy got one. Well, you've certainly got yeah. the Sounds one. And it's and so they t- we took Enoch Clapton question mark. And it was just after Clapton had a sort of drunkenly r- railed against immigrants from the was stage it? in Birmingham.
1: Was it Birmingham or Wolverhampton? I can't remember. I think, that, anyway. I think it's Birmingham. Okay.
0: And he quoted Enoch Powell's notorious Rivers of Blood speech. And this letter then came into sound and was published. What's going on, Eric? You've got a touch of brain damage, so you're going to stand for MP and you think we're being colonised by black people? Come on, you've been taking too much of that Daily Express stuff. You know you can't handle it. <laughs> <It's fantastic. laughs> rock was and still can be a real progressive culture, not a package mail order stick-on nightmare of mediocre garbage. We want to organise a rank and file movement against the racist poison in rock music. We urge support. All those interested, please write to Rock Against Racism, Box M. Eight, Cotton's Gardens, London, E2, 8DN. Um, sounds like
1: hackney to me. Sounds like
3: <laughs>
0: yes. Um, so, I mean, I wanted to really ask you about that period. So you, you, you talked about first starting to listen to things like Soft Cell, I guess it was 81. Um, so I'm particularly interested in the, the, the late 70s and early 80s. And one of the pieces by you that we're featuring on the homepage is your long... London Review of Books review of Simon Reynolds's post-punk book. Rip it up and start again, and that is sort of where I came in as a writer too. So, so I do have very nostalgic feelings about everything that was going on. Everything you talk about, you know, feminism, the incorporation of kind of dub and things into music, and it was it was all it was all pretty right on, and it was all rough trade, and rough trade was run as a sort of collective. So. Do you see that post-punk era as a as a sort of high watermark in in the in the kind of relationship between music and politics?
2: Yeah, I think it is. I think you're right because a lot of the artists, you know, Gang of Four or less overtly someone like Everything But the Girl were political and that's part of it. But I also think there's something really interesting in that time which Simon Reynolds in his book, which is a fantastic book, mm. gets into, which is that I think there's a kind of ambiguity to a lot of the musicians' politics in that time. And you see a kind of a modernity and a kind of glossiness coming into the sound that is almost working against the professed political positions. Mm -hmm. And uh, and in Promise You a Miracle, I interviewed Martin Fry about this, and he was really interesting about it, saying that, you know, although they were very much on the left and, you know, that was very much where they were, but they were kind of wanting to make music that, was more commercial sure. ultimately, and they were sort of almost becoming Thatcherite unconsciously. Yeah. And I think in a lot of the bands, the changes that happened from the late seventies to the early eighties, you see that that, that you know, some, I mean, someone like Scritti Politti, that's yes, really obvious, absolutely, where they go from all kind of abrasive yeah, to yeah. being all glossy. But even in a more subtle way, you know, I think even in someone really dark like kind of Joy Division, there's a kind of spaciousness and there's a sort of modernity in the sound, sure. which you could see as being, oh, it's all you know post-industrial desolation, yeah. and clearly it's partly that. But I think it's also a sort of message that Britain is about to change quite rapidly, yeah. and quite a lot of post-punk innovation as we all know then was kind of co-opted if you like or you know by people who became huge stars like U2 or yes, whatever yeah so I think it's a really interesting time where it tells you that musicians can be overtly political in a way that's very ethical and, and really meant mm-hmm. but at the same time without almost without meaning to be their music can be sending another message which is actually Britain's needs to smarten up and become yeah. more businesslike and that sort of feeling of being on the cusp between these two worlds, that totally fascinated yeah. me. Mm-hmm. And Simon brings it out in his book, and I kind of explored it a bit more. Mm-hmm. And it's not to be finger-pointing and saying, oh, you are all hypocrites, you mm-hmm. know, or anything like that. It's more subtle than that.
1: Yeah. I mean, significantly, I think a lot of it was simply a response to what had immediately preceded it. I remember yeah. going down the Ackham Hall and seeing the raincoats and Prague Vec and so on yeah. and so forth, and everyone, you know, miserable, everyone had a yeah. cold 1979. Yeah. And it was just, just horrible. And then... Skrillex, produced sweetest girl, yeah. you know? and I'd seen Skrillex at the Hall, and it was a pretty dismal, yeah. end, you, know, end, you know, endurance test. <laughs> and suddenly, this just most fabulously beautiful yeah. thing comes out, and we all knew who they were, basically. Yeah. So there was no question yeah. about yeah. that. But suddenly, beauty was allowed back in. <laughs>
2: I think that's exactly right. That these changes are, you know, they're not necessarily conscious. No, I, you know, I get that, but I also think that this gets us into something about politics and music, which I think is really important. Which, there's a kind of, uh, there can be an overt politics in music, mm-hmm. like you know, which causes do you support? What do the lyrics say? What are your kind of ethics and how you deal with you know, you, you know, people who buy your records yeah. or whatever? How do you vote? How do yes. you vote? <laughs> yeah. But the, I think there can also be an unconscious politics, which mm-hmm. is like the sound. Your general kind of affect, yeah. you know, what signal is that sending? What's the yes. racial makeup of the band? What's the gender makeup mm. of the band? And and what I are think the crowds
4: like at your gigs, you know, how, yeah. how do people behave when they exactly when they feel an affinity towards what you represent? I think that can be a bit looser. Exactly, but I think there's an interesting conflict in what you were just saying before that, which is that the, kind of the heart of it is how can you justify wanting to be successful and commercial? Yeah, while also making political statements and how do those two things mesh in a capitalist way. Mm, mm, Yeah, and that's mm. a
2: huge tension, obviously, for anyone who's involved in kind of cultural production is, you know, exactly Mm. what happens when that commerce becomes more important. And obviously, a lot of those post-punk bands, I would say, broke up quite quickly because they couldn't process that kind of question. But I also think that there is something, you know, pop music is very complex kind of form and so it can be political on a lot of different levels, and they're not necessarily all meant. And sometimes they can be read different ways. You know, you could read certain kinds of music and say, oh, well, that's a rather right-wing kind of sound" on some level, but yeah. to someone else, it might sound different. Yeah. So the, these meanings aren't even that mm. fixed.
1: Or you can hear the claims of the other. I mean, YouTube been an example, where Bono has always claimed to be on the kind of the right yeah. side, yeah. And it turns out that some of his favorite gurus are some of the most extreme new markets so of neo-liberals you know yeah. so you know how what game are you playing here
2: yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah all that you know i mean i remember when i was at school a friend of mine really liked springsteen and was always playing in the Born in the usa yeah, yeah. and and you know i i didn't realize until i was about 18 like years afterwards that that was meant to be kind of the anti-vietnam war yeah, yeah, kind of anti-establishment because i just heard that kind of big drum sound Absolutely. and the sort of glossy and i just thought this is and obviously a lot of people who like springsteen still like that song in a kind of inverse, in in right wing sense yes. to this day. Yeah. if you just yeah, sing
1: chorus. Born in the chorus. Yeah, well, and yeah. don't bother listening yeah. with the rest yeah. Well,
0: I think Trump definitely played it at some of his early yeah. rallies, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, it's all Springsteen, sort of. Springsteen
2: Yeah, um, but um, but I, I remember think when, managed to put a stop to it.
1: When Springsteen toured here in 83, he. The Miner strike he was going, he was donating yeah. you know gate money to the yeah. to, to the miners, yeah. you know? yeah. so it is complex, I think you 're absolutely yeah. right. I wanted to actually touch on
0: Red wedge and specifically everything but the girl yeah. who have a new album out this this month because I think that was a really interesting moment where you had these you know, pretty commercial pop acts forming this kind of alliance and um, we've got a piece by William Shaw from Smash Hits which is which is a, a, a report on the Red Wedge tour it's an interesting moment says, and that's 86 yeah yeah I'd forgotten how late that was but you know it's Paul Weller and the Star Council it's Spandau Ballet yeah you know it's um as, as well as Billy Bragg the Smiths <sighs> we're on we're played dates on that too which is really really interesting so there's the usual suspects but you know no gary kemp himself says in this piece people don't think of us as political you know i grew up in a labor household and i sort of want to touch on so i really interesting things you're saying about affect and about you know what Production can say, you know, that you can, you can be ostensibly political, but, you know, or left wing, but your records sound very, very commercial and yeah. sort of bombastic. And so the, the long read that we're running on the homepage is this 1984 interview with Everything But the Girl. And they're really interesting because. They're talking about not playing Top of the Pops because of the sort of semi-naked girls, and they just won't do it. Yeah. So we'd rather people come and see us, like, we're not going to play Top of the Pops. I really admire the fact that they've they've really stuck. So they're going, they never did sort of make a record with Trevor Horn. Yeah. And I think they've had a really fascinating career, but they were derided back then as being these sort of po-faced well, well, they
1: were po I mean, like I said, that my friend Sean O'Hagan from my Cram set had... Ben, during it, his Paisley Telecaster as being an unhip article because it was Paisley and a real guitar was a semi-acoustic. So and there, there was there was something distinctly P.O. faced about them back then.
0: Yeah, but it's an interesting yeah. thing, isn't it? Because in a way, Ben Watt and Tracy Thorne were like they were sort of they're like the godparents of woke, and it's the same refrain all these years later that anyone who who talks about you know, right on in any way politically correct, it is is immediately lambasted as being humorless and po-faced and joyless and we're, we're in that moment aren't we you know we've got these these these, these, these sort of tory comedians who just can't stand anyone saying anything about racism or, or misogyny
2: yeah that I mean, yeah, absolutely. We're in a period... I, I would argue we're in a period of kind of quite intense identity politics yes. where it's kind of resurgent, but there's also a very strong reaction against it. And yeah. it's quite like what happened in the 80s, you know, with the, inverted commas, loony-left councils, mm-hmm. right, where they were doing all kinds of things, some of which actually were kind of made up by the tabloids, but yeah. they were doing plenty of things, which I think most people now who are remotely left or centre might think are pretty good, like, you know, hiring more women or mm-hmm. thinking about racial bias or whatever. But... Yeah, there, there's this accusation of, oh, you're all terribly earnest. And in the interview, you mentioned with everything but the girl. I mean, the fierceness with which they hold to their positions as the is kind of goading them and sort of saying, oh, come on about, you know, and they just <laughs> absolutely rigidly stick to what... And in some ways, that's kind of maddening to read, but in some ways, it's kind of heroic because they're just like, nope, we're not doing this, that's it. And I guess when that interview is, is it 84? 84, 84 yeah. So maybe by that point... I mean, that's obviously Rock Against Racism has kind of faded. Yes. So maybe there's a sort of little bit of a kind of music press thing going on about, oh, well, that was two years ago or three years ago. Now we're going to slightly, you know, mock this. Well,
1: I mean, there are two parallels between... Well, there's another parallel between then and now is you could argue that after the disastrous Michael Foot 1983 yeah. election campaign, and Neil Kinnock's rebuilding yeah. the party, which eventually led to Tony Blair, is not dissimilar to what's happening in the Labour Party no. now. Yeah, correct. I mean, I think we'll just hope that um, we next election is 97 rather than 92. But <laughs> <laughs> but there is that as well. And, 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 you know, yes, then it was loony left and now it's woke and so on and so forth. But uh, And again, at some extent, it's it's an age division as well. We are returning to a sort of separation of the ages in a way that we haven't seen since the 60s and 70s.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's really, really extreme. I mean, without being too much of a political nerd about this, if you look at the 2010 election when Mm. the Conservatives got back into power, in that election amongst pensioners, Labour and the Conservatives were almost neck and neck. The Conservatives won by a few percent. Right. And at the last election, the Conservatives won amongst pensioners by about 40%. Wow. And so there's been a, you know... Generally, older people are a bit more conservative, yeah. but it's not, it's not written in stone. That no, well, a mass- so,
1: someone has been taking their pension for the last two years. Yeah. So
2: yeah. but, it's, but it's a startling... You voted Tory
1: in the last few <laughs> years. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we can finally admit it. Yeah. But it's yeah.
1: true,
0: yeah. No,
2: yeah it's no, it's a re- no, it's a really good point you'll make, though, that in a way there's a, kind of gen- there's a generational battle mm-hmm. that is maybe more like from the 50s or the 60s or something Yeah. Like Whereas for a lot of my early adulthood in the sort of 90s and the noughties, there, that gap was much more blurred. Right. And it's kind of returned. Yeah.
1: I mean, you know, there's, there's, there's always been that myth that the next... We're heading towards a great future because young people yeah. are, are fantastic and yeah. right on. And yet we've had some of the most reactionary governments in, here and in America that we can r- remember. But now people are saying, well, actually, this is starting to change. That the, the, the current people in their 50s and 60s yeah. are more likely to keep their left-wing politics than previous generations would have partly because they see what's happened to their children in terms of not being able to buy houses yeah. not being able to you know get these earn decent money and live in a city like london mm. um, i i i have a in my, my kind of younger age group of friends, mass exodus from London, yeah. which, you know, is yes. unimaginable in our
4: youth. And I think while it is true that there is this generational difference, I think that can sometimes obfuscate why that generational difference yeah. exists. Yes. And that, in describing it as a generational thing leads people to think that it's about, you know, older mm. people getting more conservative as age, and rather than thinking about the material yeah. circumstances sure. that young people are in that are mm. making them yeah. feel certain ways, like not being able to afford houses, not being able to afford, Absolutely. To afford in cities, and, and, and not being able to find work that commits that yeah. kind of thing yeah. without, you know, uh, doing something the, the, hyper-commercial. The,
1: the, like. Obviously, the invention of the internet has changed yeah. everything hugely, and the, the media landscape has changed, is that governments still seem terrified of newspapers who are selling... Fewer and fewer copies, which I, you know, I still don't quite understand as why. Why currently the, the the Tory party's dog is being wagged by the Telegraph's yeah. tail?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I suppose it, my explanation for that would be that amongst the voters that Labour and the Conservatives are particularly mm-hmm. obsessed by getting, who are generally older people living in what's called the red wall right if that, if that thing exists yes. those people still read lord newspapers yes. and so that's partly what's yes. going on mm-hmm. yes. and also i would argue that things like the bbc are over-influenced by what's on the front of the daily mail yes. so it has a kind of you know it's amplified in that way yeah. but no it is kind of startling when i try yeah. and explain to my kids who are 18 and 20 that newspapers matter politically they sort of just look at me like what yes. are you talking yeah, about yeah, you yeah, know, yeah yeah i know you know, I know. so i agree it yeah. is strange but I mean, I'm always slightly too optimistic, but um, <laughs> my argument as someone who's sort of left of centre would be that, yes, we're always waiting for the great moment where young people kind of run the world. But I think perhaps it is a bit different now because, as you've said, maybe people in middle age have had a different formation. They've yes. come up through, you know, a more, you know, in some ways more liberal, yep. more pop culture dominated world. And there's an interesting argument made that pensioners now are beneficiaries of Thatcherism, a lot of them. Mm-hmm. They bought their houses under right to buy and so on. So they're a particularly right-wing cohort, and mm-hmm. it's an unusually right-wing. So it may that effect may then change. Right. Soon the people in the 60s were people who didn't buy their council yeah. house because they couldn't yeah. afford to or yeah. because, yeah, yeah. The, you know... Have so, been renting all their lives. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. So... Exactly. I think probably change is coming in that way. And I'd argue that in a lot of countries like in Britain and America, a lot of people on the right are doing quite clever things with, you know, constituency boundaries. We might yes. call this gerrymandering yeah, or yeah. voter ID mm-hmm. because they realise we need to really maximize our our dwindling, you know, large but dwindling yeah. kind of grumpy old man vote, essentially. Yeah. That we yeah. need that has to have maximum leverage, yeah. and this is the way to do it. And that can be very smart politics, but it's you know, unless you get very extreme, mm-hmm. it's quite hard to make that work in the long term. No. I mean the obviously the obvious
1: diff- um, thing that's different from that is America, simply because of the way the American political system is set up. We could be looking. At a future of electorally minority yeah. Republican administrations.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in a way, arguably, that's all. You know, the Republicans be, yes. have, have uh, you know, somewhere like Texas is fascinating that yeah. Texas, you know, by most counts is a majority Democratic state yeah. in terms of who lives there. Yeah. And yet the Republicans control every level of government. Yeah. And, and they do all kind of, I remember I went to Austin once years ago, and obviously Austin, you know, relatively it's liberal. Very liberal. But yes. they've gerrymandered it so that every single bit of Austin is like a kind of... The pointy bit of a slice of pizza. Yes. With, so yes. there's a huge rural hinterland yeah. for each. So even in Austin, I think, a lot of the elected positions are held by Republicans yeah. because they just incorporate these country areas yeah. into the same... Yes. So... You're right, in America it is a bit different. And a yeah, like,
1: system where you have two sentences from every every yeah, state. Exactly. So a state which has a population of two or three hundred thousand has the
2: same, same number. number of sentences yeah, as absolutely. in California or New York. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure.
1: Can we briefly go back
0: to nineteen
2: eighty one? I think, more, I, think more, I think that's more. always a good
0: <laughs> and, and, and and slightly more parochially. Oh, sorry. Um, you know, worries. <laughs> no worries. We quite enjoy it when someone phones
2: in to the podcast. Yeah, it's Keir Stormer's just ringing for say, <laughs> You need to talk about orange juice. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: fantastic. But I thought it'd be a good moment to just talk about the, the week's audio and hear a couple of clips from that. So, Mark.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's the Beat's been interviewed by John Tobler in 1981. David Steele and Ranking Roger, the one who failed to go on and succeed afterwards, and the one who. Uh, the unlikely one who did massively well afterwards with Fine Young Cannibals. And well, we'll listen to the first clip. They're talking about political involvement and unemployment. And unemployment, that's right.
5: What's a short What's a third it
6: might not be particularly fashionable at the moment to talk about unemployment or whatever, but it's getting worse and worse. And it's just, like, our way of saying, yes, we can see it. I don't think it's going to change much. You seem to be a band that gets involved in causes. You know, like the... Well, the, uh... no, we get involved in the world outside. And seeing England's in such a state at the moment, you have to get involved in things like yeah.
5: that. I mean, like, unemployment and, like... I don't know, like, nu- nuclear power is... where well, we've done benefits for both of them. And it's like, um... Just thinking, like, it's your life that's been messed around with, that's why we've done it. And for unemployment, what happens, like, in ten years' time when probably I won't be able to find a job? You know, qualified for that. It's it's everybody's future. Oh, stand down, Margaret, stand down, please, stand down, Margaret. I say, stand down, Margaret, stand down.
0: We must mention the fact that in the last podcast episode with Rob Dickens, yes. um, there was this splendid story about when Madonna first came to <laughs> London and she didn't turn up for her first interviews the next day because, to quote Mr Dickens, he said, what word shall I use? She had been partying with Ranking Roger. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so two years after this. So,
1: yeah, So, anyway. yeah, yeah, so, so they, they go on to talk about changing producers... Malu book on the band. Malu is a writer I'd like to get hold of for Rock's Back Pages very much, if that's at all possible. Anyone out there know of her whereabouts? <laughs> Put her in touch. About their Go Feet label, about working with the Congo's Cedric Mighton. The Congo's been absolutely one of my favourite bands, and so that is very interesting. Sax are their wonderful old... Old. In fact, he wasn't that old. He's only in his probably 50s. probably younger than us. It <laughs> <laughs> wasn't well, significantly younger than me. He was taking a backseat and his son Lionel taking over, doing cover versions. Uh, their new single hit it, but uh, we'll listen to the next clip. It's about their opposition to nuclear weapons.
5: If you
6: now, you've expressed a lot of interest in the past in the anti-nuclear business, and you've done yeah. benefits and stuff, and Stand Down Margaret's proceeds were given to the anti-nuclear, whatever it is. What's uh, what's the story? Are you still going to carry on with that? Yeah, we have to, really, unless we all want to get blown up pretty quick. I mean, we just come back from America, and the feeling there is so weird. I mean, everybody in Washington was totally out of their brains. I mean, I don't know if you know the story about Washington. Is that everybody goes out of their brains on cocaine. I mean, I'm not particularly into that sort of thing at all, but that's what the whole... All the generals and... Anyway, maybe we shouldn't talk about that anyway, but um, (laughs) the anti-nuclear campaign, yeah, it's very important to us, because... and that's something that happens pretty quickly.
5: I mean, you just imagine millions of people in Britain, and just to think, if we carry on having missiles in in England, which are controlled from America, that means your life is is being, um, is being handled by a maniac who's got control over a red button, you know what I mean? And that's from the other side of the world. <laughs> it's very frightening, though, because, like,
6: we could die in the next three years. Like, all we're trying to do is get a few facts over to people. It's a most come family entertainment,
5: everybody's in the bunker, everybody's getting pushy, beat the others I'm ahead, beat the others to the button, feel your habit of
1: I mean, you know, we can laugh at their sort of reasonably oh, well, naive charming. approaches, but, I mean, I remember vividly when the cruise missiles started arriving at Greenland Common and so on and so forth, and the rhetoric of Ronald Reagan, was who had only just been elected, that 81 was... He,
2: he, yeah, who won in 1980, but, yeah, become yes, president, exactly, absolutely. in 81, yes.
1: And, uh, and the rhetoric that he was, he was using, and that Margaret Thatcher was happily joining in with, was really unnerving. I, used to, I was living in a council flat in, in Bowen, 14th floor, and I used to have nightmares of mushroom clouds rising over what would have been Rumford, you know, being my view. Uh, so, you know, if it gets into your head to the point where you actually have nightmares about nuclear war, it just shows how one felt it, sort of. No, yeah.
2: it was a scary time. I mean, my dad was in the army and we were living in Germany then. Right. And quite near the border. And, you know, they used to test, you know, various sirens on the base where he was and stuff. And, you know, I can remember it's like an 11 year old, it would go off and you think, is that they used to test? Yeah, seriously. It was that. And there was all this stuff up on the posters, I remember, in the building where he worked, where, like, you know, Russian tanks could be here in two hours Mm -hmm. or whatever, you know. And very real. Yeah, it was, absolutely. And I think, obviously, a lot of musicians, I mean, you know, all sorts, I mean, sort of Kate Bush and this heat and all kinds of people, all kinds of musics were very preoccupied at this time, UB-40, with the possibility of nuclear war. Yes. Um, And that was a massive politicising thing, wasn't it?
1: Absolutely. I mean, again, another parallel with now the Ukraine invasion and suddenly the absolute possibility that via the use of tactical nuclear weapons on the battlefield could expand into into a, a proper nuclear conflict. I didn't think we'd ever be back here again. I thought those, you know, when the yeah. Berlin Wall came down, you know, 89 and so on, mm. and so forth, I thought that, that, sure, that, that, that those days were over. Well, you know, they ain't.
0: Yeah. 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 I mean, just to put the interview in context you know because we were talking earlier about the early 80s period and although the beat were not on two-tone they were from the Midlands yeah. first and, sing- uh,
1: their first single was two-tone was, I was think that's probably right I, 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 I Midland,
0: can't remember it was Madness but they came out of yeah. the same scene yeah. and were involved in the same politics and benefits and stuff like that actually I'm, it saddens me that people don't talk about the beat in the way that they talk about the specials anymore. I mean, I'm not saying that they ever made a record as great as Ghost Town. No. Yeah. But they were quite a,
1: quite an mm. exciting I, outfit. I, for I love it. I, I bought Hands Off She's Mine and then the first album. Yeah. And I sort of rapidly went off And First of all, I hated Stand Down Margaret because the sort of didactic, over-direct mm-hmm. political mm-hmm. lyrics just don't work for me. That's that, And they, they never really wrote... The good, good enough.
0: enough songs, actually,
1: mm. you
0: know. No, and people don't really talk much about them anymore.
2: No, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. They've kind of they're not so much part of the story, are they? No, no. Going, going back to Ghost Town, though, I think that is the video for Ghost Town, oh. like a kind of famous video. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting example of inadvertent politics in a video because mm-hmm. clearly the song is about kind of social decay and tension and, and, that's, and, the, mm-hmm. and it's a melancholy video and they're driving through London and they go past at one point the West Tower which had been built in the late 70s. Yes. Which is, And one thing I think is fascinating is almost without knowing it or perhaps exactly without knowing it, they're driving through the very place which very soon is going to become the centre of Thatcherism and her takeover. Yeah. Of, so the song's meant to be about you know, Britain in decline, mm. et A melancholy. And actually, it's showing you these big city edifices, mm-hmm. admittedly kind of moody black and white, but essentially they're missing the story. It's like the story's right in front of them, they're driving past <laughs> it in that's the car. That's That is the place that is going to replace your version yeah. of. And, you know, that's not to do the song or the video down at all, but no. I think you can even see that that moment is even in that video.
1: I'm the, the, though I will say kind of against that is that at the time when that record came out, I, we all absolutely knew what it was about. Um, yeah. And that it yeah, really... Yeah. I mean, it was the, the year of the riots in Brixton yeah. and so on and so forth. And it absolutely captured...
2: Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, no, I understand it. Yeah. It's one of the great political records. In but, there exactly, is an irony. There is, but there is an irony. But there is an irony. in the video, it's like they're just driving past the place, yeah. you know, that literally, you know, three or four years after mm. this song comes out, people in that building yeah. are going to be remaking Britain so, in co- a way d- that... Doing
1: all the cocaine that Ranking yeah. Rogers
2: is talking exactly. about.
1: Exactly. Um, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Uh, no, it's ex- it's also an extraordinary piece of music, Ghost Town. Oh, it's it, 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 it. You it's listen brilliant. to it today, no, it's just, just, just yeah. Unbelievable. It's
2: yeah, unbelievable. Yeah, it is. <laughs> this time.
0: There's so many things that we, we could talk about in this theme. So so many extraordinary political moments. Obviously, we could do like three or four hours on the history of politics and pop, and we're not going to do that. I wanted just to mention that the, the feature on the RBP homepage is tries to sort of stretch from kind of the early '60s yep. folk activism mm-hmm. through to. There's a great piece that uh, Lisa Verico wrote in 2016. Where are where are the political pop yep. stars? So you know, and in between those two poles, there's everything from from sort of, you know, the MC5 to Mick Farron to the Dead Kennedys to Sun City, Steve Van Zandt. You know, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of kind of nodes along the way. So we've added this... Peter Paul and Mary a piece that Maureen Cleve right. did in thousand nine hundred and sixty three where, where they 're they're talking about you know that they, they want their message to cut through even though their albums are selling selling lots and lots of copies you know, their, their main concern is that their their social and moral messages are are, are penetrating and cutting through. I just wanted to mention, what, what sort of got me thinking about this, partly, was that I've just started reading this book by an American writer called Jeff Charlotte, or Charlotte, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, called The Undertow, which is basically about the, you know, the rise of American fascism. One of the things that's interesting about it, from our point of view, is that it's bookended by these two really interesting, beautifully written chapters, quite kind of grill Marcos-y type chapters. The first one is about Harry Belafonte. Right. And the last one is about the Weavers, and specifically yeah, yeah. Lee May. Yeah, yeah. But it just, in both of these, I mean, it, it sh- I find it shocking to read them, and I mean, I'm ignorant of just how brave we didn't both, the, both we, the Belafonte yeah, and yeah. the Weavers we were. We didn't have
1: the blacklist here. Yes. No. And that really defined certain sections of the American left. Ah, well, the American right too. It's a shocking story of Belafonte
0: and Sidney Poitier flying into Mississippi at the time of the the civil Mm. rights when the the three activists were murdered and how they're chased by the Klan through the... I mean, it's just
1: like... But but in Washington, people like Pete Siegel have been blacklisted. Of course. Simply for possible association with communists and so on and so forth. That's one thing that we didn't have in this country. We didn't have that massive abiding fear of communism. Uh, we had a lot of Labour MPs who, for all intents and purposes, were communists. Yeah. Um, there were Labour MPs after the Second World War. D- yeah. Two or three Labour... Uh, communist MPs. Yeah. You know, yeah, The party was never banned in its country. But in America, it's a very, very different story, yeah. basically.
3: Work all night and a drink a rum
1: like come
3: banana till the morning come
0: And then to sort of, you know, bring it up, to mention this Lisa Verico piece, the subtitle of that is "Self Selfie Obsessed Stars Are Selling Out to the Power of Branding. I mean, it's all about, it's, it, it's a piece from December 2016. Trump has won the election. Mm-hmm. He's not in the White House yet, but he's won the election. You know, Brexit has ha- All this stuff has happened. And what Verico is saying is, where where are the voices from from musicians? She quotes... Crispin Hunt, former frontman of the Long Pigs, and at, now by, <laughs> at this point, chairman of the British Songwriters Association, Basker. And he says, music at the moment is much more about self-regard and solace than social issues. Pop used to be at the vanguard of political and social activism, but as its primary function became to entertain, it was easier to distance itself from the world outside. And he also uses the phrase the narcissism of the digital age. So, true to kind of, Yeah, true. <laughs> I mean, what, what why there are a number of different reasons why major stars are not standing up against the would-be dictators of the modern age in quite the overt way that perhaps they could be.
2: I suppose partly it's, I'd argue, it's because popular culture deals with politics in more diverse ways mm-hmm. than it used to, you know. So when there was the whole kind of movement behind Corbyn, you know, one of the big things was a, a video game, Corbyn Run. You know, that mm. was one of the... So it was almost like, oh, we'll make a game where Corbyn is the heroic main character rather than write a song about how great he is. And
1: Corbyn at Glastonbury. And, yeah. oh, Jeremy Corbyn and so on. Yeah.
2: So I think that's part of it. It is, it. it is puzzling, though, really, because we're in a... I'd argue we're in a really quite politicised time, mm-hmm. unlike ten years ago yes you know, in for good and good and bad ways we are and politics is something i think people are more interested in than they were mm-hmm. especially younger people who you, you would think are, a big era you know big group of consumers for kind of pop music and you know you sort of think overtly political british bands i mean sort of sleaford mods or something you know even you know that, and they've been, been around for quite a while haven't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, i yes. think
4: there's, there's kind of a
2: difference between political as in you
4: know, party politics and... Or statement-making. Or political... I mean, you know, you could say lowercase P political or uppercase P political. How you want to sort of differentiate those two things. It's like the business of politics, I think, can still be seen as something that's a bit poisonous to get involved with because it's seen as detached. You know, it's not actually authentic to, to be sort of saying, oh, vote Labour or something. Yeah. Can I also because make another parallel with the Maybe feel there, about there? politics? That, that
1: actually, that, that, that we also live in a time of wellness and all of this yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and so we've, in a way, become more inward-looking in the same, in similar way to the way the hippies were quite inward-looking, with yeah. that respect. Um, and in the same way as that pop rejected politics in the late 60s, maybe that sort of side of the culture is doing the same thing again, whilst at the same time all this other shit's going on. You know, the the Black Lives Matter and the really important things. You know, Yeah,
2: I I think that's true. I mean, on the other hand, I'd say maybe in ways that are less direct, pop music still has been quite political in Britain the last 10 years. I mean, you think of kind of grime or the rise of kind of British hip-hop, and I know there's a kind of blurred distinction. I think, you know, and I'm saying this obviously as a white person, but I think that has said something quite important about black identity in Britain and has made black people more visible. Yes. And I think that that is a kind of profound political Mm -hmm. kind of change. And it might not be yet manifested in Westminster because a lot of black voters are in safe Labour seats and so arguably in our electoral system they don't have that much clout. Mm -hmm. But I think the visibility, you know, when I was into hip-hop, you know, as a much younger person in the 80s and 90s, the idea that there'd be lots of British rappers mm-hmm. and that there'd be lots of those people who American rappers would want on their records mm. would have seemed totally mm. far-fetched. Yeah, back. yeah, yeah. And then I remember when Tricky started, I was really into him in the sort of early 90s Yeah. and Massive Attack and that whole thing. And that seemed like quite an important moment. And obviously, grime and everything around it is that, but on a much bigger scale. Yeah. yeah. And so I think it's not necessarily that the black artists are saying we stand up for particular causes. Mm-hmm but although obviously some grime artists did get behind corbyn and that was probably quite significant but i think that's kind of an example of almost like an indirect yeah. politics being important
5: question for the new prime minister how do you have a heart so sinister? How are we so wasteful when people are dying in Somalia? Afghanistan, Egypt, Libya. The irony is we have no business in Syria. But kids- and another
1: thing which relates to that, we're talking about rough trade and the importance of people, labels like rough trade. The grime was effect- effectively a DIY homemade yeah. thing. And yes, the major artists have gone onto major labels and selling l- large yeah. amounts. But it, it's a homegrown scene. Very much in the way that the DIY post-punk scene was.
4: Yeah, yeah. And I think the type of overt political statement has changed as well. You know, I mean, people now, discourse, if you want to put it that way, has kind of fractured in such a way that when, you know, rather than making broader statements, artists will pick a specific cause. I mean, uh, we were talking about this before we started recording, but... You know, for example, Lizzo's body positive activism, yes. for example, yeah. is something that yeah. is, is very specific to one mm-hmm. cause. And I think that social media and the way that pop culture works these days does perhaps lend itself more towards, yeah. you know, pursuing, pursuing specific things rather than making broad statements that can feel, I think, a bit alienating, a bit <sighs> kind of... Yeah.
0: Well, that's all very unreal. well, but, 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 you know, um, what if democracy does die in America, <laughs> mm-hmm. for example, and none of the giant figures yeah. of American popular music of the last 20 years said anything about it. But I, I, mean, they
4: they do, I mean, they do say things about, about well, Trump, for mean, example. Name me one, like, anthemic song no, yeah, that but, addresses no, there's, there's
1: Trump there's, and there's there's fascism. There's a real problem here. Because of the way in which music is sold in America, it's really easy to shut people up. I mean, the Dixie Chicks... Really came up with some radical stuff, yeah. and their careers just absolutely no die. They didn't get paid. They yeah. were no well, they're the no radio- longer now, by the way. Uh, but, yes, <laughs> yes. I know. But, but, but they're no longer played on, on radio. They, yeah. they, you mm. know, that sort of stuff. You can be shut down in America mm. in that sort of way.
4: Mm-hmm. And I think people... I mean, you're asking for anthemic songs that say these things. I think people say them, you know, in Instagram stories or on TikTok. Well, that's the that, other thing, that, yes. That yeah. It's artists have access to the public in a way yeah. that doesn't require that access to be via music yeah. in the way that Good point. it used to be.
0: I mean, I understand. We're probably... I'm Probably nostalgic for a time when records like Shipbuilding, Free Nelson Mandela, Ghost etc. Yeah. were they really spoke yeah. for. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I suppose in a way, and 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 maybe that that nostalgia is yes, misplaced. But, but, well, no, but
1: see, again, you're talking about a much more limited landscape. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. You know, you know mm. Now the landscape is as wide and as deep as and, yeah. Is, yeah. you know. So I don't think anyone, anything, can ever have that, that sort of power. No. Again. I mean,
4: I mean, Kendrick Lamar is making yeah. extremely political records yes, exactly. and saying, even in his lyrics, very political yeah. things. Yeah. Mm. Just as one example. But again, you know, the, I think the terms of the engagement have kind of changed yeah. in a, a funny yeah. sort of yeah, way. Yeah, yeah.
0: This piece, Lisa, she, she makes a very good point, and this is now six years ago, over six years ago. She talks about Taylor Swift keeping Sturm about her. F- Feelings one way or other about Trump, you know, mm. she, yeah. she can't afford because yeah. broadly speaking, half her audience was yeah. was Republican and half was red and one half and half was blue. Yeah. She couldn't afford to alienate fifty percent of yeah. her fans. Mm. But there is a, there's a, I mean, in a sense, what you've said has answered this this point. She quotes Amanda Ghost in this article, who had been a musician and was was uh, at this point an executive, and she says she sees a brighter future for twenty seventeen. I honestly think. Trump could be pop's saviour. The prospect of President Trump is horrifying, but it reminds me of the Thatcher and Reagan years and how fantastic pop became in their wake. Trump will give artists
1: something real to rally against. Yes, and I sort of think it, yep. it is barking up the wrong tree because the tree is, its a different tree mm. we're, right. we're, we're, we're living under now. You know? yep.
2: but I think the point about the divided audience is right, Barney's point that, yeah. that you know it's it, it, when things are so polarized because I, you know, we know that in the early '80s, lots of lefty British musicians were putting out records that were being bought by people who didn't agree with their politics. You know, yeah. people would be like, "Oh well, I just like Two Tone anyway." Yeah, yeah. Yes. yes, and so it wasn't quite <laughs> such a
1: the two-tone skinhead audience yeah you know, well, like, exactly yeah.
2: yeah
0: of course of course I mean in that Red Wedge piece they talk to various audience members afterwards and there's well apparently there's a <laughs> there's one fan who said well I, I just came along for the bands and the only anything that changed my mind at all was, was the Smiths I hadn't liked them particularly but, but I like them much better having seen them on playing a Red Wedge co-. and, and, I mean, and <laughs> you
3: yeah,
0: <know>, like more <laughs> yeah. now oh my god I yeah. mean you know we do not have time yeah. to go in the yeah. trajectory of, of 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 Morris no no that's a
2: special program in itself the special,
0: yeah. <laughs> um, the special program yeah. exactly yeah. anyway all all very very interesting I mean we are talking at the end of a week in which you know Donald Trump was indicted yeah and also Finland has joined NATO so it's been yeah. quite a week in the political but also sphere.
1: where a left wing leader in Finland was replaced by uh, that's true. you know a Absolutely. coalition so it's
4: worth under- noting before. about about Finland is that incumbent. Leaders in Finland basically never win elections, right? And so her party's performance actually exceeded expectations for Mm. that. So it's not, you know, obviously it's not good Mm. that that they didn't win, but Mm. it's it's not as bad as it can look. And she had
1: to take a drugs test because she was. Filmed dancing. I know, I know. Yeah, yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. I, know. Yeah. I want to mention one more thing, which did cheer me up this week before we go on to the yeah. library highlights, was, was uh, Reba McIntyre, who was a sort of pillar of the Nashville establishment in the 80s yeah, and 90s, yeah. standing up for trans rights in Tennessee, which...
2: Good um, for is, her, yeah. good for her. I mean, again, I've said I'm too optimistic, but I do think it's interesting when you see these signs that people mm-hmm. in, in inverted commas conservative, you know, there's mm-hmm. subtle changes, and I spend too much time reading... Writing, Newspapers in the British Library <laughs> um, for my own um, research purposes. And it's fascinating if you look in something like The Telegraph, you know, the front page is all as you'd expect yeah, and yeah. fierce, you know, probably fiercely right wing more so than it was, you know, 30 years Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. But if you look in the kind of wedding section, it'll be like organic wedding in Hackney, you know, and there's a kind of interesting thing where the sort of wokery in a subtle way is yeah. kind of creeping up yeah. through the kind of layers of the. And I think that's a fascinating thing as well, the extent to which, in the culture, if you like, broadly defined, people are kind of losing when they think they're winning. And I think that's not to say that liberals are going to win everywhere, because absolutely not. And it can go the other way too. But I think that's an interesting thing that can be happening. That, yes. that all kinds of stuff which, you know, in the eighties would have been seen as completely insane, you know, by yeah. people on the right in Britain is now standard even in right wing parties, like we need to have an ethnically diverse base of candidates, for example. Yes. Yeah. That would have been seen as a loony left kind of Ken Livingston idea. Yes. Now that's just kind of standard. Yes. So There's kind of complexity in how the culture sort of moves politically. And it's never, I would say, it's never moving in one direction at once. Mm -hmm. It's kind of simultaneously getting more right wing and left wing at the same time, depending on who you're talking to and about what.
1: And also just because there are different forces pulling in different directions. There are economic forces, there are social forces. And they are actually, you know, they're diverging. The economic forces Yeah, absolutely. We are now in possibly a new depression or whatever. On the other hand, you have greater freedom of expression and ideas in terms of your sexuality yeah. and all kinds of sort of areas like that. Um, Not in Texas or Florida or Tennessee. Well, well this- anyway, anyway <laughs> let's, let's, <laughs>
0: let's end on that optimistic note. We do also need to talk about two um, major figures that we've lost yeah. in the last week, uh, namely Ryuki
4: Ryuchi Sakamoto.
0: Ryuchi Sakamoto and... Slightly easier to pronounce, Seymour
1: Stein. Seymour
4: Stein. Seymour
0: Stein. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, Sakamoto, most people will know from either you know Yellow Magic Orchestra or Merry Christmas, Mister Lawrence, um, and Jasper uh, yeah, you, I mean, you're... Titanic figure Titan- in yeah, Japanese, figure in
4: music. Japanese I mean, music. I mean, you know, and that that band, Yellow Magic Orchestra. Each member of it did did really interesting stuff and it's funny we were just talking yesterday i mean we were talking about video games they were one of the first groups to sort of recognize the idea that that video game music could be interesting yes. and could that be was fruitful. a radio
1: free slot dedicated <laughs> to video game music which i think is just
4: kind of marvelous i love some yellow magic orchestra stru- stuff i love yeah. some of his solo stuff i think he's just was a fascinating yeah. kind of guy and I, I think that merry christmas to Mr. lawrence i think he was quite pissed off by the fact that he was kind of just typecast as a Japanese villain in yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that a lot of appreciation of Japanese music is kind of colored mm. by a certain typecasting of of Japanese yeah. people in that way. But I, I, but, but you yeah. know there's a lot of stuff there that's that's I, well worth must diving admit, into.
1: I yellow for past me part time because it just wasn't an area I was listening to but so many of my friends whose opinions I respect have been Raving about mm. it on his death. I'm going to do some serious revisiting. <laughs> Regarding Seymour Stein, Steen Stein, one of the last of the record men, the old fashioned record men, and of course, in a way, we had a tribute a month ago from Rob Dickens talking about his introduction to the the, the music business yes. was, was, was courtesy of the man. Really important, you know, um, Ramones, Madonna, so much kind of interesting stuff. Absolutely, incredibly and, important. And
2: somebody who was a real sort of fan and very eclectic in what yes. he liked, that's really interesting yeah. to read about.
1: I mean, people say there are, you don't get record men like that anymore, and I don't think that's true. There are people who run some of the quasi-independents in, this, in, London, in England in particular who I'd, I'd categorise as true record men. But... There was that point in the nineties when all the labels were being bought up successfully until you basically had three massive yeah. combines, Phonogram, and you know, uh, uh, and that killed the classic record man. It became accountants. It became mm-hmm. profit-driven. And he was he was he was a, a cl- he was a real record man. Yeah. Isn't,
2: isn't that a very good? Bell and Sebastian song, Seymour Stein. Is that by is that by them? The yes, s- yeah, they did yeah. write a song because yeah.
0: he, he signed them to siren yeah and the, i mean system. i've
2: never obviously because i don't listen to lyrics properly i've never really bothered following them but, <laughs> ah, yeah. but there's some sense <laughs> yeah. in the song that he's like coming to like listen to them play and then yeah. go off on his jet plane again yeah. and afterwards and everything and yeah it's very evocative
1: because you know, we know we had chris blackwell on the podcast and he's a true record man too and i i think there's something mm. i love about these people who kind of uh, senior in a company but can absolutely determine an aesthetic and an approach to Pop and and pop talking pop of the
0: great record, men I mean, one of the things that happens when we lose major figures like this is that at least one or... Two of our writers send in things. I wrote this piece. I did this interview. With yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We actually got uh, this this audio interview sent in by Jason Cohen, where he in turn is talking about another great record man who is the the mentor for him, which is Sid Nathan of King oh, Records. Yeah. So he talks a lot about you know he basically moved wow. to Cincinnati yeah. from from his native no New Sid York Nathan, to work. For no Sid
1: Nathan. No James Brown. No James no. Brown, no no. Brown. No funk. I mean, it's no. kind of. Yeah, yes, isn't it? Yeah. And you
0: think of a lot of these people as pretty kind of ruthless and pretty oh, cutthroat, yeah. but you listen to the way Seymour talks yeah. about Sid Nathan. Yeah. And there is, you know, genuine, like, affection there. So, you think yeah, this yeah. guy can't have been all... He of of that ruthless. I mean, yeah.
1: you know, maybe the is a bit sketchy, but, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. but,
2: but also, they have a kind of interesting sort of internal conflict, don't they? Because they're sort of music fans, yeah. and they're always sort of trading off between yeah. what's going to be adventurous and what's going to sell and all yeah. those. So, those conflicts that are yeah. within musicians and within fans and are there in them.
1: And they're white Jews, yeah. more often than not. Yeah. Often, than not. Yeah. often dealing with black yeah. um, music... Both minorities. Yeah. Both victims of the Ku Klux Klan and so on and so forth. Yes, yeah. There's all kinds of complications there. That's another podcast (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Interesting.
0: Yeah, Um, and there's there's a couple of Sakamoto pieces that that are on the homepage at the moment. One from L magazine, of all things, Mark Derry asking Sakamoto uh, particularly about uh, Yellow Magic Orchestra, which is interesting, and Jim Sullivan, an interview um, from 1998 for the the Boston Globe, so yeah uh, Farewell fa- Farewell, both though Seymour b- and Bucci, both, uh, both of those men me I you. And at this point, Andy Mark's going to tell us about some of the pieces he's added to the library, if there's anything that kind of rings the bell,
1: inspires you to say something, please jump in yeah, Hullabaloo 1967, Paul Nelson reviews Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. This is what went in last week, and he says, Here at last, for enjoyment and edification, we have the first Joycean pop album. This seems to just like solving a delicious puzzle you think as you tap your foot. Joycean, the first Joycean pop-up. I put that quote on Facebook and Great. got some <laughs> fairly interesting responses. <laughs> he also says, With the album, undoubtedly their masterpiece, the Beatles emerge with Bob Dylan as the major musical forces in the golden age of pop music. Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Blan- Club Clubland... <laughs> club band. Is that a Freudian it, slip? Or? There's a Freudian slip if it wasn't. Is that Rarity among Popular Records? A completely realised relaxed and successful work of art. So that's... that's Andy,
2: that. shows Critics can be totally wrong then, can't <laughs> they? You know? are, you,
1: are you Beatles or
0: Stones
3: or, I'm kind or? Of,
2: It's It's interesting that maybe it's my age and like I said at the very beginning about stuff not being available but a lot of 60s music I still don't really you know doesn't Sponsy really not no you know in my family mm-hmm. my kids love the Beatles I still you know there's a lot of very famous Beatles songs I've literally never heard right And but interestingly with my kids they know all about the Beatles. And Mick Jagger went into a restaurant where my son was working and my son didn't know who Mick Jagger was. And I thought it was really interesting. The Rolling Stones, you know, enormous thing, very important, all the rest Partly because they never
1: went away. Maybe They just sort of, it, precisely. like, kind of, you yeah. know, yeah. Right. yeah.
2: yeah. Right.
4: This
1: is really interesting. This is Barry Kane interviewing Joan Amitrae in Record Mirror 1978 in real life what we've sort mm-hmm. of been talking about. Very prickly interviewed, because she could be very prickly. I mean, she's a really interesting woman. And she, he keeps on asking her about being black. Yes. And she says, don't ask me about contemporary race problems. I refuse to voice an opinion publicly. I may talk about it to friends, but I don't want to see what, I'm think, what I think politically in writing. Which I... I kind of get, you know, because in a way she's been pushed into a corner yeah. by the left-wing press. So yeah. You should be yeah. one of us in this respect, you know. And yet she's writing these intensely personal songs. Difficult she- sort of
0: path to tread, isn't it? Yeah. You know, the fear of alienating people who might buy your records by being too outspoken. And certainly, I mean, that's a long time ago to be in that situation. Yeah. Or that yeah.
2: becoming the one thing that people know about right. you. I yes. mean, maybe this is quite famous, but I remember some point in the 80s, the NME did something where they asked all these musicians, you know, who do you vote for? And everybody said, I vote Labour, except for Gary Newman, who said, I vote Tory. Yes. <laughs> and it was like, you know, a sort of excruciating and probably career-damaging thing yeah. for him to say. Yeah. And although I, at that point, I think my politics were quite unformed, but I don't think I was a Tory. But even so, I kind of thought this is a bit unhealthy on some yeah. level, that he's, you know, that Gary Newman and those amazing sort of songs from that period in the early 80s were sort of suddenly coloured with the fact, oh, he's a Tory. Yeah,
1: right. Um, And now we've learned a lot more about Gary Neumann, the fact he's autistic and so on and so forth. You know, just just sort of getting changes that landscape.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So although part of me was kind of pleased that they were all Labour supporters, but part of me thought there's something a bit queasy about this, that, that it's this, like, blanket position that you have to hold.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah. Yeah. This week, uh, Jimmy Page. Well, we've got two. We've got Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page separately interviewed, which is on two ends of the same shelf, you know. Brexiteer. Was he? He was. Oh, God, it's
0: dismal. All all, all those sorry green belt rock squillionaires were were voted leave. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, adultery.
1: Yeah. I've actually, yeah. I've, got to, I've got to be, had a long time ago I posted a quote where Paul McCartney was saying, the worst thing, we shouldn't go into Europe because it means we'll lose feet and inches and, and miles and we'll have to drive in kilometres. And it's just like, you know, get a grip, man, you know. Um <laughs> And we have You won't be able to
0: get PG tips. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We've still got them.
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is him talking about Led Zeppelin 4. He it says, It's not going to be called anything. It's non an entity in the marketplace. Non-entity in the market. Non, uh, non-entity. Non-entity. In the, well, it, 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 it was printed as non entity. You know, it's not going to have a title. There's four runes or symbols on it. Each of us has picked one. And Elia says, But the fact is there were so many file-ups by engineers, basically engineers, Andy Johns deserves to be hung, drawn, and quartered for the fiascos he played. Oh. Well, a you know, but. Mild about, slapping of the wrist. Well, well, yeah, but remember, this is the Andy Johns who had sailed too close to Keith Richards. Mm. And uh, I, some, when I, again, I posted that on Facebook. Some. I forget which album's been produced. They said that he, he was falling asleep at the mixing desk. He was nodding out. Well they fucked up the, they tried
0: to mix when the levee breaks at Sunset Sound yeah. and it came back to London and put it on and it was it just sounded awful. Well, you they know, were all, all sitting there going, things, What the fuck have you done to this yeah. Epic, yeah, but we blues. We mixed,
1: we, we mixed a bunch of stuff at sunset. Susan really? Rogers, and we brought it back London and really? too. Yes, something happens on the flight back. Something, something happens on the, in the fli- flight flight back. <laughs> Let me see what what else have we got here. Any fascinating? Oh, this is great. Talking heads: Tina Bingham to Chris Heath. Smash hits, nineteen eighty she says, "I love Madonna. I'm all for her. I just love the joy in her voice. I think she's got a lot of balls and she's very funny." I love to read her interviews. I love crucifixes because there's a naked man on them. I think that's wonderful. Here's a girl, <laughs> just like Prince, who lost her mother young and she's got a daddy fixation. Oh, uh, so and funny. then she, she goes to say, He's, he, David Byrne, has been indulged. That happens to a lot of creative people. They've been indulged as children by their parents and are allowed to get away with murder. He knows it. I, I love talking about into this from that period because she's so rude about David Byrne all the time. Well, I mean, I did this interview
0: with them in 83 in Maryland, I think it was, they played a show. It was like well, some of the, ended up in the Stop, Stop Making Sense right. film. And I interviewed Byrne, who was really very odd, difficult man to interview. And I then went to the other changing room where Chris and Tina were sitting. and And they were like, so how was David, you know? And, it was
3: like, <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I sort of said, uh, whatever, whatever he had, some of the things he'd said to me, and they were like looking at each other, rolling, ne- rolling their eyes. She never
1: know. really forgave him for making her re-audition for the band when they got signed. Right. You right. know, which yeah. is a pretty it was a, re-
0: it was a very, very divided yeah. camp. Yeah. I mean, the shows were extraordinary. But- so
2: that whole thing about when they first started and how they dressed and that kind of preppy Pre- man, yeah, yeah, particularly yeah. him... Yeah. It's interesting, I mean, I didn't know any of this stuff, that sense that he actually was pretty conventional yes. and, and sort of, you know, patriarchal yeah. and all the rest of it. it wasn't yeah, just like a kind of <laughs> art look, you know, actually who he was.
1: I mean, and we talked about Gary Newman, but I always felt Burn is somewhere on the spectrum. Somewhere on the spectrum, I think. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it was one of things I did love about Talking Heads.
0: Yeah. And I loved that first album so much, and they looked so different yeah. that I just, I was like,
1: Wow, yeah. what what, yeah. what is this? Actually, what is I, this it, about? Yeah, I can. Conv- I, I liked them. And I fell in love with them around Remain and Light, and mm. you know, they're, they're, I just thought they were just just fantastic band. <laughs> Lastly, Sun Ra, Gene Santoro, the late great Gene Santoro, The Pulse, nineteen eighty seven. This is Sun Ra in just full flow. The creator is using me because people are ready for something better. I do what the creator tells me. I'm not a man, I'm really an angel. I'm not a minister, a preacher or a politician. There is no classification for what I'm here to do. And he says, goes on to say, Sunrise is the only name that can help planet Earth. Now that words have gone bad from the Tower of Babel, I don't want anyone to worship me or my people. I just want to get this planet back on its feet.
2: Did you ever see the orchestra at Cafe Otto? I've, I've, um, I've got a neighbour who I go to a lot of music uh, at Otto with, and he yeah. loves it orchestra, and he's always trying to get me to go. Yeah. And the only time I've seen them, I think I decided the last minute, actually, I am going to go. And I got there, and they had sold out already. You could basically stand by the door, and yeah. the door kept swinging open, and so I had about half an hour's worth just, like, standing <laughs> yeah. in the doorway... And although I've become more of a jazz fan, I liked it, but I wasn't quite as mesmerised as he was. So you haven't gone
0: from Miles and Coltrane, you haven't, you haven't gone into, into Planet Cosmic. Spaces, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but
1: I, I saw. Not yet. Yeah. Like, you haven't been like, on the spaceship. Uh, yeah, I, saw, I, I saw, it may have been that show. I saw the, the Post sunrise Orchestra yeah. cafe show, and they'd come from the end of a long European yeah. tour, and half of them were eighty years yeah, old, yeah. and they were tired, and it yeah. really didn't light up at all. But I'm very fond of. Sun Ra, you know, I think he's, Remind me of his, um, the name on his birth certificate that we were. Oh, God, he Herm- Herman, Herman Blount.
2: Blount. Herman Blount.
0: Herman Blount. Blount. But I think it might be pronounced Blount in America. Okay. I think it's just the spelling of Blount. So, Herman Blount Jr. So it's a great name, isn't it? <laughs>
2: so, it's um, the beginning of the of his desire for transformation, was that? <laughs> <was was> <laughs> yeah. I
3: know,
0: I know. Fantastic. Yeah.
3: Space is the plan.
4: Anyway, that's that's my lot. But what about you guys? You got anything? So, yeah, I was going to mention, first of all, an Ian Winwood live review of Queens of the Stone Age at the Mean Fiddler in London, partly because the three of us certainly are all big... Quatsa fans. Quatsa fans! <laughs> <laughs> and it's, it's a great review in, in Kerrang! in July 2002. Queens of the Stone Age know what they're up against and they can only do all they can do. There's a skid on Songs from the Deaf that takes the form of an announcement by a slick-voiced, entirely typical American FM radio disc jockey. KRDL109, he says curdle, we spoil music for everyone and this is very true, there are so many forces at work that are busy spoiling souring and corrupting music for everyone I thought it was kind of interesting in, in terms of what we are talking about, the sense that nothing is validated without a sponsor attached a capitalist organisation looking for its aspirational demographic, the warp Tour is sponsored by Vans, the Osbournes is brought to you by Christ knickknacks the sense that <laughs> bands are making increasing numbers of allowances with video, with celebrity, with the fusion of music and marketing and these evils are becoming more more and more necessary blurring the line between integrity and opportunity to the point where it seems as if only a relic would protest they are making allowances as are we the listeners the beauty of queens of the stone age is that there are no allowances to be made by either party within the heart of this beautiful vibrant music is a sense that every day is anything can happen day it might end in a mansion it might end in a skip it doesn't really matter and the fact that they don't care means that you can there is nothing they can say that can't be sung and i think it's a great Review of a great band, and it sort of gets to the heart of how things might have shifted, sort of commercially speaking, in the early 2000s to this, like, everything now is replete with advertising, replete with commercialism, and, I, and I, you know, Queens of the Stone Age are, are in that sense, quite an old-fashioned sort of, like, straight-ahead rock group and they sound fantastic as well mm-hmm. which
2: helps and, and also something we haven't really talked about which is just the expense of kind of live music and you know and i understand there's all kinds of reasons why that's happened to do with the economic model kind of breaking down but that's in a way political isn't it because that's excluding you know i'm like a sort of middle class guy who writes for the guardian but a lot of gigs i think i'm not paying 50 quid 80 yeah, yeah. quid or whatever because it can kind of really and henry rollins was was talking and I thought with my SST obsession you know get, I've never seen him do a spoken word thing and you know I looked up and it was kind of 50 quid and yeah. I was thinking yeah and and just yeah it made me think well am I going to go you know and then even if you do go it makes it a slightly it changes the texture of the experience a bit because it's become a kind of boutique edition kind of event
1: yes right now there's this extraordinary row about Bruce Springsteen and Ticketmaster. That's prize. right. And, and Robert
2: Smith uh, of The yeah. Cure is weighed
1: in
0: uh, right. big time, yeah. hasn't he? Yeah. Uh,
1: I mean, it's, it's interesting that Bruce Springsteen, Mr. Right-On back in the 80s, yeah. it seems pretty... T- and again, he's just sold his songwriting catalog, hasn't he, for millions to one of these companies that are buying up catalogs? And he doesn't need to earn another penny in his life. Why is he screwing fans
2: and is he doing that whole sort of dynamic pricing yes. thing yeah exactly I mean that is yeah I mean very dodgy I think it's it is scandalous pretty,
4: to be honest
1: I
2: yeah, yeah I think yeah, so yeah, I yeah. think so and it does you know it does make me think if you're sort of 20 and you're getting into music and you're not particularly wealthy i.e. most 20 year olds yeah. then what the hell are you going to do to go and see live music because mm. it's going to be like once a year experience isn't yes. it if yeah. it's 60 quid
1: or you go to festivals yeah. where you see a whole raft yeah, of acts sure. over yeah.
2: two or three yeah. days yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean even but, even those
0: are very expensive. that's a lot yeah yeah exactly I would love to have seen Queens at the Mean Fiddler. I only only ever saw them once. No, I saw them
1: twice. Your hearing wouldn't have recovered. (laughs) No, well, it
0: hasn't recovered from any many gigs before that. I saw them at Ozfest, and I saw them at the Hollywood Bowl, and I think mean fiddler would probably would have been better yeah. i love that as we spoil music for everyone which is on yeah it's that's on that songs for it's, the Deaf, it's, it's which which I, think, which I think is the, so the best funny. hard rock album of the last 25 years are you are you a queens fan at all? i've kind
2: know? of bits and pieces i've Miss... never bought anything yeah. by them i've heard bits and pieces that i've liked i'm always quite intrigued by what he looks like what josh Homme looks like There, he yes. kind of looks like huge he's big, sort of very tall but a also Lumberjack like
0: shirt. particular kind of haircut that he has oh. and everything he's he's i think he's actually Brilliant, I must say, and, I th- and also I think you know, given your love of SST, S- S- there's yeah. no doubt that as a as a sort of quote unquote metal band, they were very influenced by Black Flag and yeah. Minus Rat and bands like that. Yeah, you know? yeah, you can see that.
2: I'm
1: very fond of what I call desert metal, which is Chaos, which is where they can, they, yeah. they came the, out of the band before. Yeah, yeah. It was fantastic, uh, I, and I love yes. that sludgy noise because it reminds me of blue cheer and bands like that so i'd a certainly there's and a thought. nod
0: to blue cheer isn't there there is there is
1: krdl kirtle 109 we spoil music for everyone shut
5: up you little
3: brat oh, krdl the kirtle
0: Jasper, is there a, a... Yeah, there's
4: one more piece, yeah. which is which is Edwin Pouncey. Who was that masked man in The Wire in June 2015? And he's talking about the way that dancehall and reggae kind of started taking inspiration from spaghetti westerns. It's just, a, it's just a fun little piece. The Lone Ranger, Clint Eastwood and Lee Van Cleef ride again as dancehall DJs. <laughs> the Jamaican <laughs> obsession with celluloid gunfighters dates back to the rise of reggae in the late 1960s particularly yes. to Lee Scratch Perry's work with the Upsetters With Perry as producer and arranged, the Upsetters recorded a series of raw organ-dominated instrumentals including their version of Chris Kenner's sick and tired hit which Perry retitled Return of Django, a reference to Franco Nero's character in Sergio Corbucci's Django Back with Dollar in the Teeth, it was the first in a String of similarly titled Rude Boy rhythms that use spaghetti Western imagery to evoke the music's outlaw aesthetic. And when Perry titled one track Clint Eastwood after the star of Sergio Leone's Dollars trilogy, he inadvertently started the spaghetti Western naming trend. It's just a fun little (laughs) thing. It's kind of like you know one of those just little episodes in music history that that. Edwin possibly picked up on, and I just found it a very entertaining little thing because I, I have a soft soft spot, I have to admit, for spaghetti westerns yeah. and the music of <laughs> yeah. spaghetti westerns. So it's interesting to me that 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 kind of travelled to to Jamaica. It's, a little, and became it's something... almost
0: analogous to Wu Tang's obsession with like kung fu. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. it's very it's much. It's very interesting. Very much, yeah. Um, but Return of Django, oh wonderful
4: stuff. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's my that's,
0: that's a great. I shall I shall read that story. Well, I. Think we may be we're drawing done. to a close. We're, we're done, we're done. <laughs> <laughs> Brusquely, we're done, mate. Um, but it's been really wonderful yeah. speaking with you, Andy. Thank you so much for, for coming in. And, oh, and thank sort of you. Like I know, I've
2: really enjoyed it. Career and your no, interests
1: and,
0: and musical tastes. It's
1: uh, we can resume our conversation about British Trotsky as much. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's the real reason I'm here. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. So, finally, just to say, do visit Roxback Pages, where subscribers can read over 50,000 articles and listen to over 800 audio interviews with everyone from... Who is it? Everyone from... From uh, um, Arlie and Jimi <laughs> Hendrix. To, yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> audios from Jimi Hendrix to Kate Bush. Check to see if your local library subscribes to RBP. And if not, maybe suggest they take a free trial of the world's largest archive of music journalism. We will be back in a fortnight, and we'll see you then. Thank you so much.
4: Thanks, Andy. Thanks Thanks, so much.
0: Bye. Bye.
4: That concludes episode 149 of the Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Andy Beckett. Find his books, including When the Lights Went Out, Britain in the 70s, in all good bookshops. The hosts are Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper, Murris and Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews, at rocksbackpages.com.